Welcome to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. We're your hosts, Tim and Ruth Olson, licensed marriage and family therapists and trauma experts. We provide wisdom for personal growth and healthy relationships. Stick with us and you'll gain practical tools and insights that will help you be a healthier and happier you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast today. What we're going to be talking about is leadership. And this can go for if you're working in a corporation where there's some type of leadership structure, a nonprofit, but this is also in relationships with your family. So this could be with your significant other, or this can be with your kids, something along those lines. So what we're talking about is going to be helpful across many different types of settings. Yeah, I would totally agree because I think the psychology of leadership is usually applied to executive positions. But when you think about it, you are leading your family, you're leading your children. So today we once again have a list of 15 things that can help you to be a great leader so that you can lead so people would want to follow you. We're going to break this into two episodes. So today we'll introduce tips one through eight. So the first tip we have for you is to develop self-awareness and use emotional intelligence. And the idea behind this is understanding how your own emotions affect you and your decision-making process and then being able to mitigate making emotional decisions. When you're trying to do leadership, it can be very difficult to not let your emotions guide and direct you. But very oftentimes when you make emotional decisions, you're going to end up making an unhelpful decision in that moment. When you're using emotional intelligence, you recognize, okay, I'm in an emotionally activated state. I need to take some time and then carefully consider. And then also, I think along with emotional intelligence is seeking advisement from other people. When you're in too emotional of a state, you can talk to somebody who's less emotional and then they can give you better advisement than what you can give yourself in that moment. Also, a part of this self-awareness is understanding your own strengths and weaknesses. And this is something that as a leader, you might feel that I have to be good at everything, but you definitely don't have to be. I know in my relationship with Ruth, there's one thing I just know that I am not good at. And it's filling out any type of government form. I have a really hard time with it. And whenever I'm filling out these forms, I always do it incorrectly. I have to do it multiple times. And very frequently, even with the best of my efforts, I still will have filled out that form incorrectly. So I can sit there and I can spend lots of time trying to figure it out. Or just for some reason, Ruth tends to have a knack at filling out government forms much more easily than I can and with a much higher degree of accuracy than I can. And so in our relationship, I understand I can turn to her for assistance with filling out these forms because she's just naturally better at it than I am. And a part of leading is recognizing where you're strong and areas where you're weak at, and then leaning on people to help you out with those areas that you're weak at not pretending like you can handle every single type of situation. And I think there's a lot of respect to be given to people who can acknowledge when they're not good at something or they don't know something rather than pretending that they know everything or nodding and saying yes when they really don't understand what you're talking about. We're in a mastermind program right now, and Tim and I were just talking about this because the lady that's leading it, somebody was talking and sharing their problem with her, and she was like, I literally have no idea what you just said. And so she's the one running it. And instead of pretending like she's the expert and she knows everything, she was just honest. And she was like, I don't know what that is. Can you re-explain that to me in terms that I would understand so that she could help her honestly and openly? So Tim and I looked at each other and he said, that's someone who is self-assured and is confident in where they're at because she didn't have to pretend. And another aspect of this self-awareness is being aware of the emotions of others. So watching and seeing how your behaviors affect other people's emotional responses to you, right? This happens to me all the time in session where 
will be talking and someone will make a face or they'll furrow their eyebrows or maybe even they'll roll their eyes. And when I see that, I don't just ignore that and roll over it. I'll point it out. I'll say, hey, I noticed you made a face or I noticed you rolled your eyes. Would you mind sharing with me what you're thinking about? And the reason I do that is because, one, if they really didn't like what I said and it caused them to have an emotional response to that, then that opens up a dialogue where we can continue to talk further about why they might not like it or allow me to explain further so that they understand better what I'm saying. The other part is a lot of times this happens where maybe they made a face, but it wasn't because of something I said. And I know I've done this a time or two in therapy where somebody will say something and it will cause me to remember maybe an embarrassing or uncomfortable moment in my own life. And then that might make me roll my eyes when I think about that. But if they see me roll my eyes, they might think I'm rolling it at what they said. But really, it was more about my own internal dialogue and what was going on. And so being aware of of how your actions affect other people and noticing when that happens. But you got to be careful, right? Because you can see that eye rolling and think that they're rolling their eyes at you. But again, you can ask more generalized questions to find out what's going on. What were they thinking? What was happening inside of their mind in that moment? Number two is to build trust. You want to earn the trust of your team members by being honest, transparent, and just consistent in your actions. A really great and impactful book is How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. There's so much good information in there. And although it was written so long ago, it still applies so well to today because people are the same. People have the same desires and needs. And when we follow someone, we want to make sure that we can trust them. We don't want to just blindly follow someone. And so being trustworthy is so important as a leader. I think, too, we're in this age where everybody wants to be perfectly manicured and they don't want to show any faults or any weakness. But the problem with that is that people recognize that and it feels inauthentic. I'm sure you can think of times where you've been around somebody and they've been talking and they seem like they're saying all the right things, but they just rub you the wrong way. It's because you feel this inauthenticity coming off of them where you feel like they're saying this, but I don't think they really mean this. And when you do that, people may have a certain amount of doubt on whether or not the person's being authentic or not. But when somebody is genuinely authentic and they reveal who they are and they're not trying to hide behind any type of mask, I think a lot of times people can really appreciate that. Now, don't get me wrong, just kind of people at large, like on the internet and things like that, they don't appreciate that. But but family members, friends, colleagues, they will oftentimes appreciate that and they will feel more close and connected to you when you go into a place where you're being vulnerable with them where you're not having that mask on that's trying to hide who you really are. Right, so one of the things is to be a man or woman of your word so that people can trust what you're saying is true. And that means not to be passive-aggressive or to say one thing and mean another or to say one thing and then go talk to someone else about how you really didn't like that project that they did. But just to be honest and transparent so that overall people can trust what you're saying is true. Actually, there was this really interesting study that they did on the therapist and client relationship. And they were trying to figure out why some therapist and client went to deeper levels than other and were able to accomplish more than other therapist-client relationships. And one of the defining factors they found is that a therapist and client who'd never had some type of run-in or kerfuffle with each other, they would do decent amounts of work. But then if there was a therapist and client who had some type of disagreement or emotional struggle with each other, but then overcame that struggle, they tended to go way deeper 
than the client therapist relationship that always was smooth sailing. What they came to understand from that is when the client and therapist had some type of disagreement and then they resolved it, they trusted each other at a deeper level and then they were willing to go to places that the therapist client relationship that was just smooth sailing wasn't willing to go because they didn't know if they could really truly trust the other person. So this is not something that you necessarily would prescribe to try to get to a deeper relationship with someone, but oftentimes people avoid any potential conflict because they're afraid of it breaking the relationship. But the inverse is also true. Going through that conflict can deepen the relationship. So trying to avoid that, you're never getting to a place where you can trust that person on a deeper level. So it's actually better to risk the conflict than to completely try to avoid it altogether. Number three is to show respect and dignity. I think a lot of times people say, well, people have to earn respect to get respect. But I think it's actually the opposite. People should be treated with respect and dignity right out of the gate as soon as you start interacting with them. Because what that's really helping to do is to set the tone for the interactions, right? If you're like, well, they have to earn respect from me and I'm not going to respect them until they've earned it, you're going to create a dynamic that's very likely to create this respectful relationship interaction. Versus if you start off with that respect, people are more likely to fall in line with it. There's this idea that human beings have what's called mirror neurons, where when we see something, we have a tendency to mirror that thing that we've seen. And so if you go in and you're disrespectful to somebody and you're expecting them to work at earning your respect, what they're more likely to do is be disrespectful right back to you because there's that automatic kind of emotional response to treat somebody back the way that they had just treated you. But if you want them to be respectful, you starting out the gate being respectful is more likely to get them to elicit that response from you. And even if they don't start respecting you right away, you starting off and continuing to be consistent with respectful actions is more likely to influence them towards being respectful compared to if you're disrespectful to them. Another part of that is to actively create a culture of respect within your team. I remember when I worked for a restaurant, it truly was a family. And so one of the zero tolerance policies that they had was gossiping, that they would not put up with gossiping because it really does lower morale and it's a huge show of disrespect to each other and it creates division. When I was working there, they really did implement this. This wasn't just something that they had in the training, but as soon as we went into the training, it was instilled in us that this is really important. This is a culture we're creating of respect here. But then they also lived that out. And so people would get in trouble if they were caught gossiping or being disrespectful to each other because they really wanted to keep that morale high and have respect all around the restaurant. That goes for how the managers were talking to the servers and how the servers were talking to the hosts and how the workers in general were talking to the guests and treating them with respect. And I think the bigger of an organization you're working with, the harder it is to actually create that. And so if you look at a company like Chick-fil-A, where their employees across many different Chick-fil-A's across many different states are very often regarded with high degrees of respect, and they seem to be very kind and extraordinarily helpful to all the patrons, that must be an organization where they just permeate that through from top to bottom all the way around. And then there's some places where you can go to where you have a great and wonderful experience, and then you go a couple blocks down the street to the same place, and then all of a sudden you get wildly different service. And that's an example where, okay, it was here in this location, but not in this other location. But for some reason in Chick-fil-A, it just seems to permeate their whole organization. 
Number four is to communicate effectively. And this is really important because this really is the backbone of how you're going to get information across, how you're going to create the morale, is to communicate what is your vision, what are your goals and expectations of each of your team members. And I think this is easier said than done because clear and effective communication might mean different things to different people, right? So for me, clear and effective communication is trying to hit me with the bare minimum number of words that you possibly can. Like for me, clear communication is bullet points. If you hit me with bullet points, I'm much more likely to be able to track and follow along with what you're saying. Now, other people might need a little more in-depth explanation in a longer conversation for them to help them be clearly communicated to. I think this is very evident in how I talk to my kids, right? When I'm talking to my son, I almost talk to him like a caveman. Caleb, do this now, right? Versus when I talk to my older daughter, Hannah, Hey, Hannah, can you go do this for me? That would be helpful. Thank you. But if I say all that to my son, he's not going to register half of it. And so understanding who you're talking to and what resonates better with them, how do they receive that information in which they can integrate and use it? And this isn't just verbal communication. This is also making sure that you have set up great company manuals where there are clear job descriptions and the people know exactly what they're expected to do. And in the family life, this is kind of the same idea where you have family rules set up, where your kids know what's expected of them. And along with clear family rules, there are what's called overt and covert rules. Overt rules are specifically stated rules. Covert rules are things that people kind of learn through either positive or negative reinforcement that this thing is allowed or this thing is not allowed. Now, the healthier your family is, the less covert rules you should have, the more overt, explicitly stated rules you should have, where everybody clearly knows this is where the boundary is. I can go up to this point and I should not go further past this point. Number five is be authentic. Be true to yourself and your values and have genuine interactions with your team. Now, again, being authentic can put you in a place where it might feel uncomfortable because you're in this vulnerable state where people might judge you and not like you or not like your morals or your values. But then there's the other hand side where you could be genuine and authentic and then people will really accept you. I think I said this in a previous podcast where this idea of if you are constantly hiding who you are for fear that people will judge you, when people do finally accept you, you feel like, well, they're only accepting me because of this facade I'm putting on. So the Danger is you might get accepted by people, but then never have any real actual feeling of being accepted versus being authentic and genuine to who you are. Some people will reject you and that will hurt because they're rejecting you at the base core of who you are, but then others will accept you. And when they do accept you, you will be able to feel and experience that acceptance because this really is who I am and they're still accepting me anyways. And the other thing too, and this is especially important when dating is, A lot of times people pretend to be somebody else because they think this will be more acceptable to them. So then they will accept me and then we'll be dating and we'll be together. But the problem is that you want somebody to accept you for who you are, not somebody you're pretending to be. And I think a lot of times people are just thinking, oh, if I get rejected, that means I'm a bad person. No, if you get rejected by somebody in a dating atmosphere, you just weren't good for that person. I always tell people you want to be very careful about learning lessons about what you did right or wrong in the relationship from a past failed relationship because something you did with somebody and that relationship failed doesn't mean that that's something wrong that you're completely doing. So, oh, I need to make sure I never do that with somebody else because somebody else might love that. They might be totally fine with it. And so being careful about learning an overarching message 
from one interaction with one person because they're not representative of the entire population. Now, if you look at something like cheating, obviously there's tons and tons of evidence that people reject that, they hate that, they feel hurt and wounded by that. But there's lots of little interactions that you can do that doesn't have nearly the body of evidence that that's an off-limits behavior. Number six is to be positive, to maintain a positive attitude and outlook and encourage positivity in your team. And I think positivity is one of those things where it really is contagious. I'm sure that you've had bosses where you've had to tiptoe around and they were always in a bad mood and you just did not even want to approach them or you walked the other way to avoid them or you knew what time they came in and you had to make sure that you were on your toes at that point. And you want people to respect you, but you don't want people to fear you or not want to be around you. One of our favorite supervisors that we had is one of the most positive people we've met. And it is so contagious. And sometimes you have to hold that positivity or that hope out for your people. And you have to model that and set that tone for your entire team. Because you want people to want to be around you and to also be drawn to you. So that in a leadership position, it's easier for them to follow someone that they respect, that's positive, and that they want to emulate. And I think it's a very natural place for people to be negative, but negativity really doesn't take very much effort. Being positive a lot of times takes more effort, but there's more fruit from being positive. And so just like Ruth said, there is something that is attractive to people when somebody is just being very positive and upbeat and expecting and hoping for the best to happen. Next one is to be confident. Now, I think to a certain degree that there's a lot of what I would call false humility that people run around with where they will downplay their own achievements, experience, or knowledge because they're fearful of coming across as cocky. Now, I like to define confident versus cocky as confident is just having security in the understanding of your own knowledge and skills. Cocky is more braggadocious, wanting people to praise you for your knowledge and or skills. But when you're being falsely humble, a lot of times it actually is off-putting to people because they're like, oh, come on, like, I know what you can do. Don't don't tell me you're not that good. Please, you're, you're amazing. Also, the other part is sometimes people use that false humility to try to fish for compliments, which I also think is off-putting and distasteful to people where they feel like, oh, come on, you, you got to know you're better. Now, don't get me wrong. There's people out there who have imposter syndrome where they really think that they're not as good as they actually are and they have this emotional mental block where they have a hard time actually accepting or believing that they've been able to accomplish it and they think oh one day people will figure it out but if you're putting on this false humility it's not really helping you or those people who are around you when you do that as a matter of fact it's making you look weak and making you look like you're putting yourself in the position of a victim when actually you're very competent in that area. And most of the time, I think when people are expressing confidence, others appreciate and enjoy that. But again, it's that balance between are you being confident or cocky? And if you're cocky, that's off-putting to people. But if you're confident, that draws a lot of people in. And I think one of the differences between confident and cocky is people who are confident, they just exude that. That's just who they are. They don't have to tell anyone about it. They show it in the way that they work in their work ethic, in the way they treat people, in the way they speak. Whereas arrogance and cockiness, they're telling people what they can do and who they are and what they've done in the past. And that goes into our next one, which number eight is 
Be open to feedback and be a good listener. Because when you're confident in your abilities, you are open to feedback and you're willing to admit when you've made a mistake. As a leader, it would be beneficial to your team for you to listen actively and attentively and and be open to ideas and concerns from your team members. Because the people that you hired, you hired them for a reason. And there's so much unused talent, unused brain power out there. And if you can just tap in to your team members and show them that you want to hear what they have, you want to hear their good ideas, and to really validate what they bring to the table, it'll encourage your team as a whole to feel safe enough to share what they have with you. And I think this is, again, where leadership can get into a prideful position where they feel like, I should have come up with that idea. And even leaders might steal the idea and play it off as their own, which is wildly demotivating to their team because they feel like, well, because I'm in the leadership position, I should have come up with that. Versus understanding that people who you're working with, your family members, they are assets to you. They're not liabilities. But if you treat them like you're in competition with them constantly, you're going to lose a treasure trove of information. There's times where sometimes my clients will tell me something and it blows my mind because it gives me a deeper level of insight into the human condition that I hadn't considered before. Or they'll give me an analogy that helps me explain things better to other clients. Even though I'm the one who's the expert in the area, I'm not being prideful and thinking that I'm the only one who has important or relevant knowledge. It's I'm still open to listening and being taught by other people because they have some knowledge or some insight that I might not have. Right. So I think giving credit to that, being able to say, oh, man, that's a good idea. I'm going to use that with my other clients rather than taking it without giving them the credit they deserve. And I think that really hits home for me because I know I've told Tim in the past that I was part of a company where I really worked hard. I came up with this great branding idea and I sent it to the person above me. And it wasn't even within 24 hours that they changed their branding and their name and tweaked it by one slight thing. But it was clearly the idea that I had just given them. And they, to this day, have never acknowledged it. And it just made me want nothing to do with that person. Because I think it goes back to some of the other things that we've said, that they're not trustworthy. They weren't showing respect. And they weren't being a good listener. They took my ideas and they used it for themselves to promote themselves. And I think that would have been a great opportunity for that leader to say, oh my gosh, if I am honest, I am so jealous of that branding you came up with. That is so fantastic. I wish I had thought about that. And that could have been a very validating moment for you where it could have made you feel more engaged in the process, but instead it caused you to shut down and then disengage And then any additional amount of information or help or benefit that you could have been to this lady was suddenly just cut off. The spigot was turned off and then no more was going to come. Right. And I think it's one of those things where if she had just acknowledged it or even asked like, hey, do you mind if I use this in a different way? I would have been so happy to have shared that with her or to have done the same thing kind of alongside her. But for me, it was the overall picture And it just caused me not to really want to be a part of it. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to part one. We'll be picking up part two with tips nine through 15. Have a great day. And remember, your mind is a powerful thing. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. If you enjoyed this podcast or found it helpful, we'd love for you to take some time and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
If you have a question or a topic you'd like discussed in future episodes, visit our Facebook group, Mr. and Mrs. Therapy Podcast, and let us know. Disclaimer, although we are mental health providers, this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide diagnosis or treatment. Please seek professional help if you're struggling with persistent mental health issues, chronic marital issues, or call the National Suicide Hotline at 988 if you are contemplating suicide.